Well, hey, good morning. Welcome, Journey. Man, you look just great. Super. I was standing outside watching them. Some of you come in late and just was great. You know, a sheriff came to see us this week and uh, said they'd put extra people out on the road the last uh, week or two and they just wanted to remind us that uh, uh, some of us are driving pretty fast to get here, even as much as 60 miles an hour. And I said, yeah, and we're still late. But so, so, anyway, now before we start, I want to dispel uh, a rumor, a question that's been going around. There have been a number of people in this three-part series that want to know, how come I don't use an iPad like uh, Pastor Brian and Chris and these high-tech people? So I thought I'd show you the reason I don't use an iPad. Uh, here's a picture of my notes. An exact replica of what I'm speaking from this morning. I go everywhere preaching the gospel, even on my own notes. So I can't figure out how to get that on an iPad. So I'm sticking with paper until they come up with a new technology for me. So, all right. Well, let's pray together, shall we? Lord, as we slip into your word, I pray that you'll give us something that will help us meet you and will change our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, we're on the third, uh, we're on the third part of a three-part series around the theme of our capacity, exploits and aspirations of us all, using, protecting, and increasing our individual capacity for doing good in a broken world. Our capacity is the amount and type of good God has given you the potential to accomplish in your lifetime. The amount and type of good God has given you the potential to accomplish in your lifetime. And uh, we're going to slip into 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. Paul the Apostle is writing his last letter, the last letter he wrote that's in the New Testament. And he's writing it to Timothy, and Timothy had been, um, he'd been mentoring Timothy, and they had been ministering and working together. Now they come to the end, and Paul writes to Timothy these words. He says, this is why I remind you to fan into flames the spiritual gift God gave you. Every one of us has a God-shaped spiritual DNA, a capacity for doing good. Fan into flames the spiritual gift God gave you. Learn how to use that capacity. God gave you when I laid my hands on you, for God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity. Paul is saying, your capacity can be stolen from you. It can be betrayed. It can be lost. Three times, three different times, Timothy is told to be careful about uh, being timid. So he says, God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power, love, and self-discipline. Timothy, your capacity through an increasing of power, love, and self-discipline, your capacity for doing good can be increased. And uh, that's our theme. I'd like to show you a couple pictures. We started with them three weeks ago. Uh, I want to finish with them. They're becoming my two best friends in the world. And uh, you might remember, this is uh, Camden Scott. Uh, born April 17th, six months premature, 
and or six, uh, excuse me, six weeks premature. <laughs> and uh, uh, now he's got his own uh, wardrobe specialist and uh, looking pretty good, huh? Yeah, he's about four months. And uh, he has a cousin. This is uh, Stace Williams. Stace Williams was born May 10th, and so he's about three months old now. And uh, he's a smiler. He just, uh, he's learned what tickling is, and uh, so he, uh, he breaks into a grin. You know about these two pictures? Notice what you feel. Notice what you feel when you look at two pictures of small babies? That already they possess the capacity that God-given DNA to bring into you joyfulness and hope? So Jesus said, let the little children come unto me, but for such is the kingdom of God. At three and four months, they already can produce in us joyfulness and hopefulness. When I came to Christ, it was under the preaching of Lowell Lundstrom, who with his family toured all through the Midwest. He he was a guitar player, and his family were musicians, and they would sing for about 45 minutes, and then he would preach. And he was having a united crusade in uh, Williston, North Dakota, where I grew up, and that's where I gave my life to Christ. And Lowell would tell about going to prisons with his family, and when his little daughter Londa was just four years old, he would have her sing. She was so little that they'd have to put her on a folding chair. And so there would be this audience of of state penitentiary inmates. And uh, they'd they'd bring little Londa out onto stage and they'd grab a hold of her arm and slip her up onto that folding chair so she could get to the microphone. And he said, men who'd been in prison 10, 20, 30 years would sit there and weep. because of the innocence they carried and the hopefulness in their heart and the touch of God. From your birth, you and I carry spiritual DNA that carries capacity for good. God wants us to learn how to use that capacity, how to protect that capacity, and how to enlarge that capacity. Paul mentions there's three areas that it can be enlarged in. One is power. Power is the ability to alter reality. It is the ability to alter reality. He says he has given us power, the ability to alter reality. One of the disservices we have done the church of Jesus Christ is is we have constantly taken the stories the exploits of God through the lives of his people that we read in the scripture, and we have presented them as a series of principles or precepts. Now, I can read a lot of those stories, and I can get principles out of them, but they never stop being exploits. God wants you and I to have stories. Stories that have no explanation other than God was involved in it. And he wants that to be a normal part of our life. He wants us to live so that miracles are apt to occur. Because this book is full of miracles, and if we're not going to talk as if miracles are apt to occur, we need to get a different book. Because this book is full of 
reality being altered. It is full of the demonstrations of power. And that's intended to be part of your life and part of my life. That miracles are apt to occur. That power is available and power is at work in our lives and through our lives. And so he invites us to enlarge our capacity for power. Risk takers have all the stories. Risk takers have all the stories. He's now Timothy. God wants to give you power. He wants to give you love. Love is a relational, a relational trait. Here's what love is. Love is a behavior launched by identification. Love is a relation of, is a love is a behavior launched by identification. Jesus Christ, Son of God, comes to earth, the incarnation. And he takes on himself our flesh and blood. And he identifies with us. And when we start identifying with someone, then our heart begins to follow that identification. Love is a behavior launched by identification. And we can increase in our love. I can say to my wife when I married her, I love you with all of my heart. And I can say 42 years later, I love you more now than I've ever loved you. It didn't mean I loved her with half a glass full when I married her. It means that my capacity after 42 years is larger today than it was then. The Apostle Paul was traveling around ministering with Barnabas. And Paul was, he was a task guy. Get her done. That was the Apostle Paul. And uh, Barnabas, he was a lover of people, but they'd teamed up. And on one trip to Pamphylia, which was a lowland, marshy, mosquito-infested area, they decided to take John Mark with them. And John Mark was a young guy, and he got out into that mess, and the Bible says he departed. He left. He said, I don't, I don't like being here. Paul and Barnabas, were, they were planning another trip. And Barnabas said, hey, let's take John Mark with us. And Paul said, over my dead body. He says, it's not going to be preach the gospel, drag John Mark, preach the gospel, drag John Mark. We got stuff to do. And so they had such an argument that they actually separated company, Paul and Barnabas. And years later, Paul is writing and he said, oh, and, and send John Mark to me. For he will be profitable to me in the ministry. What happened in the gap? Oh, I imagine John Mark matured a little bit. But Paul's capacity to love people matured as well. And it expanded until he could love John Mark in a way he couldn't love him years ago. Power, love, and self-discipline. Self-discipline means personal authority. I am able to take personal authority over the arenas of my life. And as I increase in power, love, and personal discipline or self-discipline, opportunities increase as well. You and I have arenas of our life that will sabotage God's work in us if we can't take personal authority over those arenas. I love, uh, I love baseball, and so every so often I throw on for love of the game. Kevin Costner, uh, a uh, baseball movie about an aging pitcher in the major leagues pitching at Yankee Stadium maybe for the last time. 
It's a movie of flashbacks. He's thinking back through his life as he's pitching this game, which is turning into a perfect game, fifth, sixth, and seventh inning and on. And in the movie, with thousands of fans yelling and screaming and a perfect game on the line, you see Costner bending over, looking down at home plate from the pitcher's mound, and he would say to himself, clear the mechanism, and then shoo, all the sound would stop, and he would, he would have effectively shut out everything that would have distracted him. There are certain arenas in our life where we have to be able to exercise self-authority personal authority so that, those, so that other things don't distract us. So Paul says to Timothy, you can increase in power. You can increase in love. You can increase in self-discipline. So let's finish up today by looking at three ways you and I can increase. Among the many ways we could use. Three ways that we can increase in these three arenas of life. Number one, Paying attention to the people you hang around with. Paying attention to the people you hang around with. All of us have friends. How do you choose your friends? Why do you pick the friends you have? See, we ought to really have circles of friends. One circle of friends are the, are the people that we have an affinity with, we have preferences we share in common, and when we're together, we just have a great time. And I think God's happy, happy we're having a great time. We're happy we're having a great time. We go camping together. We roast marshmallows. We tell jokes and stories. We laugh till our side hurts. And we think, that was great. And everybody needs that. But we all need to be picking another circle of friends. Those are people that are in our life because they help us towards righteous goals that we are setting. They are helping us towards righteous goals we are setting. They're not in our life so we can just hang out with them and have a good time. They are in our life even though we might hang out with them and we might have a good time. They are partly in our life because they help us be a person that is enlarging in power and in love and in self-discipline. And that's part of why they're in our life. There's a little, uh, this little, little thing about temperaments. Now, if you use an old temperament model, there's clerics are the doers, uh, sanguines are the relators, phlegmatics are the process people, and uh, melancholies are the artists. I'm a flag, uh, and everybody's a primary and a secondary, so I'm a phlegmatic melancholy. Like, I love process. Uh, phlegmatics go to no meeting without a, a yellow legal pad. And we use it. We scribble page after page, diagrams, lists. You know, I went to the Global Leadership Summit this week, and you got those, those academic people that got all these kind of lists and print. You know, I'm just drooling over myself. I'm just, I can't, I can hardly help it. I'm so excited about the stuff that's being shared. And, and phlegmatics, that, that's kind of how we are. Then there's cleric sanguines. The cleric is the doer, the sanguine's relator. The cleric sanguine is the primary leadership temperament in the United States. And they are doers. They make things happen. They are action-oriented. They are optimists. The world just explodes with color and energy when they're around. I'm married to a cleric sanguine. 
Your lead pastor, Brian Hopkins, is a cleric sanguine. Bill Hybels is a cleric sanguine. Now, cleric sanguines exasperate phlegmatics. <laughs> just like every trait exasperates everybody. It's not just me, guys, now. Come on. We exasperate one another. But I surround my life with cleric sanguines. Because I'm a better person when they're in my life. And I've been married to one for 42 years and I've served Brian for seven years and, and I don't do it just because I love them. I do it because I'm a better person. My world is different and fuller. And they just live at a whole different pace than I would normally live. I mean, cleric sanguines don't walk, they bound. You know, phlegmatic shuffle. Just, you know, baby steps, baby steps. We have a family, a favorite family story about one more ride. We have to, you go to, a, I tell you, you go to, you go to Disney World with a cleric sanguine, you bring your walking shoes. Because it's, you know, it's conquer the mountain. We, are, we were all day at Disney World with our family and we get down to the end of the day and say, oh no, one more ride, Dad, one more ride. Like I was done two hours ago, but no, one more ride. Okay, so we're headed to that ride where the train goes through all the buttes and bluffs, you know, and but there's rides on the way, and so we stop and see all the presidents, and uh, then the haunted mansion, so we go into that, and then we finally get to the train ride, and wouldn't you know, the train ride broke down in the middle of the ride. It stops in the tunnel. So we sit there, and finally the Disney people show up with flashlights, and take us out of the train, and walk us into the bowels of the ride, and back out. Well, naturally, to be good customer service people, they give us a fast pass for another ride, like I needed that. <laughs> and, of course, my kids all want to go to Space Mountain on the entire other side of Disney World. So over we trudge to Space Mountain. Now, that little, that little story, one ride turns into four, that's the Cleric Sanguine World. Many days in my life, my world would be like this if I didn't surround myself with them. You and I often don't reach our goals because we don't pay attention to who we're hanging with. We don't build into our lives the people that will help us achieve the goals we've set. Moses mentored Joshua. Elijah mentored Elisha. Naomi mentored Ruth. Mordecai mentored Esther, Jesus mentored the twelve, Paul mentored Timothy. When they said the disciples were ignorant, unlearned men, the, the, next, the next sentence was, but they perceived that they had been with Jesus. That the change they were seeing was because of who they were hanging around with. People who enlarge us. One of the reasons I go to the GLS, the Global Leadership Summit, is is the first session where Bill Hybels always talks. This is a guy who, with God's help, built a church of 25,000 people. He's now in 100 countries. He created a ministry model that has its own name and is all over the United States and the world. And at 25,000 with his own ministry model, at the top of the mountain, he could just coast. And every year, he starts with a presentation and in the middle of it, you realize 
He's climbing another mountain and he's uncomfortable on that mountainside. And he wouldn't have to do that. But he does. And he does because he hears the siren call of the capacity God has placed within him and he just determined to honor that capacity and to enlarge that capacity as long as God gives him breath. People who enlarge us. Here's the second. Processes that move us. A lot of people try to make change in their life just based on desire. Oh, I want to do that. Hey, how's that going? I'm, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to conquer impatience. Oh, what are you doing? Ah, I'm reading a book. How's it going? Eh, it's too long. <laughs> Listen, you've got to have a plan, a path of execution. When God came to Gideon and was going to try to get him out of his paralyzing fear to where he would take 300 people and go up against tens of thousands of Midianites, he didn't take just a big swell swoop. Plan one, make sure he understands I'm God and that I'm with him. Step two, give him a baby step. Gideon, go into town and tear down the pole of Asherah. That's all they asked him to do. Go into town and tear down the pole of Asherah. What was that about? That was God helping Gideon in his humanness, in his weakness, to take step upon step upon step so he could get to the full capacity and accomplishment that God had in his heart for him. Jesus had a plan if you see how he worked with the disciples. Nehemiah had a plan when he ended up rebuilding the, the, the walls of Jerusalem. Processes are righteous activities. Do you have a plan? Do you have a process? Now let me give you three little pieces that help me. My processes need at least three things. One, what's my mechanism of engagement? What's my mechanism of engagement? Here I am. Here's the reality I want to live in. How do I begin to engage that reality? What's my mechanism? So Moses takes the children of Israel out of Egypt... Pharaoh has a change of heart and sends his army, the mightiest army in the world after Moses, chasing a group of people who haven't had a spear in their hand for, for hundreds of years. Moses and the guys, the people are backed up against the Red Sea and God promises he's going to perform a miracle, the Red Sea's going to open. And what's the first thing Moses has to do? He has to put his foot in the water. Much of our understanding doesn't happen until, until after our action, not before it. And Moses puts his foot in the water, and the water begins to part. That was his act of engagement. So I was over here working yesterday, and there's not, nobody around except some folks we hired to do cleaning here. And, and I went into my office, and they actually were ahead of me. They were unlocking the office to empty the garbage, and... Then I was working in my office, and they were vacuuming outside. And then I went to the bathroom, and well, they were cleaning those bathrooms with a different one. And, and I gave them a typical phlegmatic greeting. Hi. You don't want to overdo. Gush, gush. You put phlegmatic, and then you layer that with German Scandinavian, and... Pretty well inside an onion, you know. It's just kind of a... 
bumped in three or four times. I go back to my office and I thought, I'm not even treating them like they're people. I could say that to a palm tree. So I, now I'm not expecting the heavens to open and the voice of angels, but I thought they deserve to be called by their name. Even if I forget it five minutes later, I'm still going to ask what their name is. So I, I trundled, trundled out in there cleaning in the foyer. And uh, the guy's cleaning the windows of the doors. He's got a squeegee in one hand and a cloth in the other. And I think, well, I, what, well, I can't even shake hands with him. Well, what, what, he, he, there's no place for him to... Now you, you'd be amazed at how little things dissuade us from doing what we should be doing. How peculiar we start thinking. Well, this is silly. He's going to... No, silly. My thinking's silly. What am, so I just walk up to him and say, hey, how are you doing? Glad you're here today. My name's Derry. Yeah, my name's Brent. He's not even normally clean. His daughter has the business, but her husband was took one of their kids to a ball game, so the family was helping out. Ah, Brent, this is my, my daughter Kendra helping out. So I went over to Kendra. She only had things in one hand, so I got to shake her hand. Hey, Kendra, my name's Derry. Glad you're here. I don't imagine they went home and thought anything about it. They probably wouldn't have thought anything about it had I not even gone out there. It wasn't that their world changed at all. It was I was determined to change my world. There had to be a mechanism of engagement. I purposely stepped in to an arena. You know, for a while, I don't do it much anymore, but for a while I just thought, because I tend to be very reserved and interested, God says, listen, I want to do something in your life, but you've got to do something physically to engage that. So in worship, I want you to raise your hand. What? I don't even raise my hand in the classroom. I'm not going to raise my hand in church. You know, trying to get a German to raise his hands, kind of like half-mast. You know, he says, bless me, Lord. Make it big. So for months, until God let me off the hook, I'd sit in the front, get up, we'd stand up to worship. It never, never got easy. But I wasn't looking for easy. I was looking to step into a different reality. And so I'd worship and we'd sing one song. I'd raise my hand. Not because it was more spiritual than the people who were not doing it. It was because I was trying to engage a different reality. And I had to physically move myself to that place. Processes, processes that move us. A mechanism of engagement. How about this? A road to the resources. What are you going to need to make that change? And build a road. The United States is famous for our infrastructure. We, we, we build lines to get electricity. We build lines to get water. We build roads so people can travel. What's Infrastructure is about preparing an area so something can happen. And a lot of people have a goal. They have this desire over here, and they build no road from the resources they will need. People or money or insight or information. They build almost no road, so they make it about as difficult as possible to get the resources they need to the enterprise they're involved in. Build some roads. Third is create a space. I was looking at all the building going on in the Gallatin Valley, and I thought, there's two things that happen. Number one, somebody establishes authority over a piece of property. 
Sometimes we want something in our life, but Satan still carries dominion over it, or somebody else is speaking ill and carries dominion over it. We have to establish spiritual authority over that area, and once we establish spiritual authority, we got to clear the ground so something can be built. Sometimes you have to clear ground physically. I mean, some, sometimes we, we, treat, we treat getting ourselves ready for change kind of like, kind of like cleaning out our garage. We'll get to it when we can. And then wonder why something doesn't happen in our life. You have to clear, clear the ground out. Keggy and Lee did some research on how to keep yourself open for change in your life. And they said, the first mind we go through is the socialized mind where we get our worldview from the significant other people in our life. And we all do that. And then we go through a second phase if we're maturing, which is self-authoring. That's where I've got to make it mine. It can't just be my parents' faith. It can't just be my teacher's faith. It's got to be my faith. And so I've got to wrestle with, what do I do so it is mine? It's my relationship to God and my prayers. I'm not piggybacking on anything. But then there's a third, which calls the self-transformative phase. And that's where I'm actually able to step out of myself and watch myself and see the gaps and see the needs and the worldview and the way I process data and interact with the world. Now, why is that called self-transformative? It's called transformative because I'm actually allowing space for something to happen. In modern evangelicalism, we're so in love with sureness we get so sure about everything that there's no space for God to say anything fresh to us because we got it all figured out and it's all neat and tied. You know, I, I know less today than I knew 10 years ago. But I live more confidently today than I have ever lived. Processes that move us. Now, if we start hanging with people who help us move towards our goals and we get processes and paths of execution, just like Jesus and the scriptures talk to us about, a third thing will start to happen. Results will compel us. Things will start changing in our life and those changes will become intoxicating to us. God will be real to us and we'll say, I can't live without this. And that itself will start to move me. We read about Matthew. Jesus headed through town, and there's Matthew. Matthew, the tax collector. He's on the outside of everything. Despised person, in league with the Roman government against his own people. Nobody is interested in Matthew. And Jesus calls him out and says, follow me. Be one of my guys. Matthew moves from being on the outside to the inside. It transforms his life. And the next thing we see is Matthew's throwing a party. He invites Jesus to his house, This guy who expected nobody would ever accept an invitation to his house, now he's comfortable inviting Jesus to his house. And scripture says, along with Jesus, he invited all of his tax collector friends, and then this phrase, and disreputable sinners. Now, I love that phrase, disreputable sinners. You and I both know there are reputable sinners and disreputable sinners. (laughs) Disreputable sinners are people whose sins have stigma. And Matthew's friends were the kind of friends whose sins had stigma to them. 
And he filled his house with the tax collectors and the disreputable sinners so they could meet the Jesus who had generated such change in his life he couldn't bear not to see that change in the people he loved who had been part of his outcast world. The results began to compel us. And that's it. That you were born with a spiritual DNA that just like Camden and Stace and a baby of three months old can inspire hopefulness and joy, you have a capacity for good. But this capacity can be betrayed, stolen, or lost if you don't learn to honor it and protect it and lift it up to God and invite him to work in and through it. And that capacity for power and love and self-discipline self can actually grow and increase so that your opportunity for good grows and increases with it. But in a crowd of this size over the last three weeks of this series, I know this. Many of us sit here and we say, that's good for you. And I know that's true about these people you've talked about in the Bible. But I know stuff about me. And you have a voice that you hear. And it is a disqualifying voice. And it whispers to you whenever somebody lifts something like this up that that can't be for you because of what you know about you. Because of how you have sinned or been sinned against. How your choices have brought failure instead of success. The shame you live with. All this talk about capacity. I'm disqualified. And because God knows you're listening, he put this in the Bible. And we'll finish with it. There's two great lists of people in the New Testament. Two great lists. One are the genealogies of Jesus. A list of people. So important was this that God, for God, God wanted us to get it. He gives us all their names. The genealogy of Jesus, of how God brought Jesus to be born into this world. So-and-so had these children, and this, the, this person had this child, and eventually out of this lineage came Jesus. And at the beginning of Matthew and Luke, we have this genealogy of Christ. And there's a second list. It's in Hebrews chapter 11, and it is a list that some call the Hall of Fame of Faith. It is a list of one person after another who did mighty exploits in their flesh, in this life, in this world for God. And there are these two great lists. And there are many, many people, great people, who did great things. There are many people who are not on either list. Many marvelous people in the scriptures who don't make either list. There are a few that are on one list or another. But there are a very few that are on both lists. And one of the persons on both lists is Rahab.
the harlot, Rahab the prostitute, who lived in Jericho when Joshua got ready with the children of Israel to march into the promised land and he set two spies into Jericho and the spies looking for a safe place found Rahab the prostitute's house and not only did she let them into her house she hid them on the roof when soldiers were looking for them and then because her house was part of the outside wall she let them down outside of the wall for their safety and she pleaded that they would just remember her and her family her extended family when they came in to conquer Jericho the Bible says when the Israelites came and conquered Jericho they remembered Rahab and they saved her and her family and Rahab went to dwell but the word there dwell just doesn't mean she went to live it meant she went to be honored among the Israelites And from this ignominious beginning of the shame and humiliation of a prostitute, Rahab ends up on the list of the genealogy of Jesus and on the list of the Hall of Fame of Faith in Hebrews chapter 11. So whatever has gone on in your life, If Christ is not a redeemer, he is nothing. And if he can redeem Rahab's life to the place that she ends up in this honored place, the capacity God put in you is worth fighting for, it is worth honoring, and God says the seed of it is still there to be expanded so that you may do good, a type of good you were particularly designed to do, and that good in this broken world can be increased as you live out and increase your capacity. Well, let's set our things aside and bow our heads as we finish today. Thanks for being so attentive. heads are bowed down, our eyes closed, we're not looking around and nobody's going to embarrass you. Could I ask you, have you heard that voice, that voice that comes somewhere in the back of your mind, that whispering voice that no matter what good comes, there comes this voice that disqualifies you. You hear it. You try to talk against it, but there's just something in you that somehow connects with it. You said, that, that's got to be true. I, I must be disqualified from this. And I'm inviting you actually to take authority over that voice, to stand against it. And the basis of Jesus is what he did on the cross of Jesus Christ and, and his risenness that in that place of authority he calls out to your capacity he tells you that you need it your children need it your family needs it your neighbors need it this broken world needs it he invites you to no longer dishonor it but to own it respect it 
Invest in it. Live through it. And do good. And right where you're seated, you could pray a prayer like that. Say, Lord, I am sorry. I'm sorry that I've listened to that voice. I'm sorry that I've allowed it to sideline me. I'm sorry that I've allowed it to shut so many doors. I know it is wrong. In the name of Jesus, I declare it to be wrong. I stand against it. But it's been so much a part of my life, Lord. I need your help. Would you show me how to take those baby steps to step into the capacity you've given me to honor it? to enlarge it with your help. Show me what to do next. You can pray a prayer like that right now. I'm just going to wait. Our heads bowed, eyes closed. You just talk to the Lord. You invite him to remove that disqualifying voice to give you courage to take authority over it, to honor your capacity, to show you the next step moving into it. We'll wait for a moment. And if you're praying a prayer like that, just to honor the Lord while our heads are bowed, this Lord who loves you and redeems what's been lost, this Lord who hears your prayer, if you're praying that right now, would you just slip your hand up and put it down and say, I'm praying a prayer like that. You bet. Way over here on my right, through the center, over on my left, my far left, way over in the left in the back. You bet. Over here on my right again, way, way far in the far right. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for how patient you are when we are so, so slow to learn. Thank you for being so willing to forgive us when we have set something of such value aside or allowed it to be buried. For these who slip their hands up, I pray you'll rush grace to them. You'll solidify in their heart the decision they've made today. You'll show them the next step. You'll bring people into their lives. You'll give them courage to own, rejoice, and use this great good that they carry. In Jesus' name we pray.